For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. We're going to be looking at Genesis 14, verse 5 through 20, which I entitled A Strange Encounter. I think it might do us some good to review a little bit. Last week, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. This signaled really a turning point in God's plan of salvation history. Subsequent to giving Abraham this promise of making his descendants a great nation, he began sort of with a select group of people centered around him, and he started to expand you know, this nation into a great nation. He taught them about his character and the moral principles that govern the universe. Um, and he also commissioned them to commit these principles to writing. And that's how we come across the Old Testament, where God commissioned the nation of Israel to set into writing these different stories that happen in their history, but also to record different things that he wanted them to understand about his character. Also, he established a prophetic record to pre-authenticate the coming of his anointed one, or in Hebrew, the Messiah. This is important because God understands that when you look at all of the ancient religious texts out there, it's really hard to figure out which one actually speaks for God. And so God knew in advance that he needed to give us some evidence for belief in the coming of the Savior of the entire human race. And finally, he sends his Messiah to bring salvation. We know that the New Testament claims that Jesus, God's Messiah, came actually to come and die in order to purchase our lives for God so that we can experience forgiveness. So with that, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 14. A little bit of quick background. What we miss in Genesis 13 is that um, Abraham and Lot, his nephew, are traveling in the wilderness and then his, their herdsmen start fighting with each other. And so they decide that it's best for them to sort of part ways. We read that Lot actually goes east toward this area and eventually settles in this place called Sodom. And then Abraham decides he's going to go west and starts wandering in that direction. Well, one year later, after Lot settles in Sodom, we're told that this guy named Keterlomer and his allies arrived and defeated the Rephites. Then the rebel kings of Sodom and Gomorrah prepared for battle in the Valley of the Dead Sea. And so, apparently, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah rise up in, in uh, revolt against uh, King Keterlomer. They fought against King Ketalomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goim, King uh, Amraphel of Babylonia, and King Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. As it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into these tar pits while the rest escaped into the mountains. So apparently King Ketalomer and his allies uh, routed the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as a result, you know, some of them uh, perished in these tar pits. As it happened, the Valley of the Dead Sea, oh, we read that part. Oh, we, we didn't. 
And the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and the victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. So as they routed them, they were able to capture some of the booty that uh, they had taken with them, which refers to, you know, their gold and stuff like that. Well, as they captured Lot, they also captured Lot, Abram's uh, nephew who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram, the Hebrew. So apparently some guy escaped and and found uh, Abram because he knew that Abram actually had a standing army. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household Then he pursued Ketelomer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. So apparently these armies, these kings, they were more like fiefdoms. They weren't like these uh, large standing armies that we think of today. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. And Ketelomer's army fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. So this is in the northern tip of Israel. Apparently Abram devised this this, uh, strategy to attack them by night, and apparently there was so much confusion that they all started running. And Abram was able to actually recover all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and their captives. After Abram returned from his victory over Ketelomer and his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shevet, that is, the king's valley. Then we're told this guy Melchizedek, the king of Salem, And a priest of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with his blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has defeated your enemies for you. Then we're told that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had received. So there you have the narrative of Genesis 14. And this guy, Melchizedek, sort of pops into the narrative and then quickly disappears. He never shows back up in the Old Testament. So this guy actually becomes a very important figure as we move into the New Testament times. A number of things that we can observe about this obscure figure. First of all, he was, we're told, a priest of God Most High. And this title, a priest of God Most High, is an unmistakable title for God himself. And so apparently this guy knew God. He, was, he had a relationship with God. All of this hundreds of years before the institution of a priesthood in Israel. Remember, this took place about 2000 BC. And Israel became a nation and started to form, the, the, 12, the 12 tribes started to form around 1400 BC. And so apparently there was some sort of priesthood at this time where people were worshiping the one true God. Also, we're told that Melchizedek blessed Abram. And this is actually very unusual because typically the person of more distinguished status would bless the person who is of lesser status. And you can imagine reading this as like a first century Jewish person. At this time, they would have revered Abram as like one of the greatest people in their history. 
a man of faith, the father of faith. And yet here's this guy, Abram, who they respected, prostrating himself before Melchizedek as Melchizedek is giving this blessing to him. Third, Abram actually offered a tenth uh, to Melchizedek. This was actually a common practice. Whenever you would go to a priest, you would offer them a tenth of your sacrifice. Or in Israel, we know that the people were obliged to give a tenth of their earnings in order to support the priesthood. And so, apparently, this was Abram's tithe to Melchizedek that he was offering. And so, it indicated that he was paying tribute or respect to Melchizedek as a high priest of God. Also, his name means king of righteousness. Melk means king, and Zedek means righteous one. And so, it's interesting that his name actually means king of righteousness, which we'll see has some significance later on. Also, he was a king of Salem. And... Um, uh, this word Salem actually is the uh, later the Hebrew word Shalom. So he was the king of peace. But we know that later this area of Salem became Jerusalem. And so apparently this guy, Melchizedek, was actually a king in Jerusalem, modern day Jerusalem, where eventually we see God's anointed one, the Messiah, would, will reign. Also, his genealogy doesn't seem to appear in Genesis. Now, this part's important because in the ancient Near East, whenever you wanted to establish somebody important's identity, you needed to give a genealogy. You know, if you look at Jesus' life, the author of Matthew and Luke, both of them established Jesus' identity by giving his genealogy. And yet, here is this guy... Melchizedek, without genealogy, sort of comes into the narrative and then quickly disappears. And yet, he apparently holds uh, this really high status. The author of Hebrews comments on this in Hebrews 11, verse 3, where he says, There is no record of his father or mother or of any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever. So, the author of Hebrews makes a sharp observation about Melchizedek, that even though he is this distinguished figure, apparently the author of Genesis never decided to put his uh, genealogy into the account. Now, when you look at all of these different things about Melchizedek, it signals to a, a careful reader that this guy was an important figure, that he held a higher status than Abraham. Which again, to the average Jewish reader, would be pretty shocking. And yet we don't really know that much about him. Okay? Sometime later, and this is okay, if you're, if you're new here tonight, there's going to be a lot of information. I don't mean to flood you with too much, but you've got to stick in here with me, and I promise there's, there's, there's a payoff at the end. Okay? All right, so sometime later... God establishes a priesthood in the office of high priest. You know, when you look at Israel's history, God establishes the nation of Israel. And he sets up this priesthood that comes from a specific 
family among the 12 tribes of Israel, they would come from the line of Levi. And these guys actually served as priests, intermediaries between God and man. And so what they would do is they would serve at what was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like this mobile worship tent as the Israelites were wandering through the desert. God would lead the nation of Israel by a cloud during the day, a pillar of cloud. And then during the night, there would be this this pillar of fire. And wherever it settled, God said, I want you to, to build or construct the tabernacle beneath that. And each time it stopped, it would actually fill this tabernacle with God's presence. And so the priests would serve in the tabernacle as sort of representatives for the entire nation of Israel. In addition to this, the priests offered gifts and sacrifices for sin. You know, you could offer a sacrifice to God like a drink offering or a whole burnt offering. This wasn't compulsory. It was something that you could do as a way to just show your devotion to God. But there were also a whole set of sacrifices called guilt offerings And these represented the type of sacrifices you're obligated to fulfill in in the case where you committed known sin. And so God was essentially teaching the people that whenever you commit an act of moral wrongdoing, there needs to be some sort of payment. A life needs to be taken. This is probably exemplified most by the Day of Atonement, one of the holiest days in the Jewish calendar. The high priest who came from another specific line within the family line of Levi would serve uh, the nation of Israel by once a year entering the most holy place inside of the tabernacle. And he was only able to go in there once a year on this day. But before he entered in there, God said, I want you to take a goat and it can't have any blemishes on it can't be spotted, can't have like three legs. It needed to be perfect in order to indicate its moral perfection, to symbolize that. And then what the high priest would do before the entire gathering of Israel, all the, the entire nation would assemble, and he would symbolically place his hands on this innocent victim, this goat. And he would essentially lay the sins of the entire people symbolically onto this victim. And then he would slaughter it. Then he would take some of the blood and enter into this most holy place and offer it to God as a sacrifice. This was God's way of teaching the people that one day he would essentially atone or pay for the sins of the entire nation of Israel and the entire human race. Now, this sacrificial system that God established through the priesthood actually taught important principles about how humans are to relate to God. You know, take, for example, the tabernacle. You know, that area, the most holy place. There was like an eight-ply, four-inch thick curtain that separated the rest of the tabernacle from the most holy place. And... Nobody was supposed to go in there except for the high priest, and even then, he could only enter in one time a year on the Day of Atonement. In fact, we read about this guy 
one of the kings who decided he was going to walk into, saunter into God's presence unannounced, and it uh, didn't end well for him, and to drag his body out of there. You know, really, when you look at the sacrificial system, God had very specific instructions about what the people needed to offer. They couldn't just, like, innovate or freestyle, you know? You couldn't just be like, well, you know, I think this time, instead of offering a sacrifice, I'm going to do an interpretive dance in the tabernacle for God. <laughs> that just wouldn't fly, right? Be like, you know, I, I like the idea of, of sacrificing goats, but, you know, camels are more expensive, so maybe we're going to go camel this time. God wasn't into that. In fact, there were two guys Nadab and Abihu, who decided that they were going to offer a bowl of incense to God, which God did not prescribe, and God referred to that as strange fire. He was upset about it. You know, he was probably like, what is that? Patchouli? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Come on, man. So really, God was trying to teach, you know, there's no room for creativity. There's no room for innervation. If you're going to come to me, it's going to be on my terms. And that's very important because God says that if you're going to relate to me, because you have made mistakes in your life, you have committed moral wrongdoing, you can't just enter into my presence unannounced because I'm a holy God. I'm morally perfect. And so if you are going to enter into my presence, it's going to be very, it's going to have to be through these very specific rituals that you need to practice. And all of these were to teach what eventually God would accomplish through his Messiah. They were all symbols of what God would do. Now, around the same time, God also promised that he would send this guy, this Messiah figure. This happens really early on. Even in the book of Genesis, we're told in Genesis 49, verse 10, that this Messiah would actually arise as a king from Judah's family line. Jacob says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all the nations will honor. Most uh, biblical scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, regard this as a messianic prophecy, one of the earliest ones, that this chosen one, this anointed one, the Messiah, would actually come through Judah's line. Judah was one of the, one, another guy from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, 1,400 years later, God sends his Messiah, Jesus, and You know, he not only is a liberator of Israel, but as it turns out, he's also the sacrificial victim that the sacrificial system depicted. That he would actually come and die the death that we all deserve in order to liberate us from our sin and from from the guilt that we deserve to pay for. And so, really, it's, it's this amazing picture of how God knew in advance what he would do, and he, would, he actually gave us these different pictures of what his Messiah would do. Now, the New Testament claims that Jesus both fulfilled the role of King Messiah 
and the high priest. So he was not only a king, but he also is regarded as a high priest. We get this from passages like Hebrews 4.14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm to what we believe. So Jesus occupied both the role of king and high priest, fulfilling the entire Old Testament law. But uh, there are some problems with this. You know, when you look at Jesus' high priesthood, the implications are that it wipes out or makes the Levitical priesthood obsolete. And yet, um, some of the issues that you run into are, first of all, that priests have to come from the tribe of Levi. And yet, we know for a fact that Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. In fact, you could trace his family line all the way to David, whom God promised he would establish the throne of Messiah through. And so, you know, you think about these first century Jewish people who are hearing about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, and also that he's the high priest who serves God, they would know that Jesus never uh, was born into the tribe of Levi. And that would have been a serious problem for them. You know, think about it this way, to put it in more contemporary terms. You know, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he qualifies to be the governator, right, of California, and uh, the Terminator eternally. You know, you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's qualified to do these different things, and yet he's disqualified from being the president of the United States because he wasn't born on U.S. soil. And so, in the same way, Jesus qualified to be King Messiah, and yet he was not qualified under the Mosaic law to be a high priest. Okay, secondly, Jesus isn't around anymore. That's a serious problem. I mean, he, he's not here to intercede for us. So a lot of, you know, first century Jewish Christians were scratching their head wondering, you know, if Jesus isn't interceding for us, then how can he serve as a high priest? Maybe we should just go offer sacrifices at the temple, which wasn't a really good idea, according to the book of Hebrews. Again, you know, to put this maybe as an analogy, think about Abraham Lincoln. You know, he's arguably one of the greatest presidents we've had. He uh, had this remarkable ability to work uh, with the other side of the aisle. And yet, even though he was a great statesman and diplomat, it doesn't really have much impact on our present day because he's dead, right? He's not around. And so likewise, since Jesus isn't here on earth, then what good is it that he is the priest or the high priest? So really, no devout Jewish person could accept Jesus as a valid high priest. And if you ever read through the book of Hebrews, that was exactly what they were wrestling through. So this poses some serious problems, in my opinion. How could Jesus fulfill both the role of king and high priest in order to fulfill the entire Old Testament law and prophets. Well, God happened to anticipate all of these problems. Enter Melchizedek, okay? 
First of all, he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. In fact, Levi wasn't even around at this time, right? Secondly, Genesis tells us that he served as a priest of God Most High. So even though he wasn't a priest through the Mosaic Law, he was indeed a priest of God Most High, probably through a different order that God established earlier on. Third, he enjoyed a greater status than Abraham. This was indicated by the fact that Abraham offered him a tenth and prostrated before Melchizedek, and and Melchizedek blessed him. Also, he enjoyed a greater status than both Levi and his descendants. By extension, if Melchizedek was more distinguished than Abraham, then he's certainly more distinguished than Abraham's descendants. In fact, Hebrews points to this in uh, Hebrews 7, verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects a tenth, paid a tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. I'll let you unpack that. And so, in a way, Levi was actually paying a tenth or paying tribute to Melchizedek because Levi wasn't even around. Also, this guy Melchizedek also occupied the, king, the role of a king as well. Remember, we're told that he was the king of Salem and that his name actually means king of righteousness. But even though we have this pattern for somebody who occupies the role of both king and priest, we're still missing a connection that links both Jesus and Melchizedek. This is where Psalm 110 comes into play. About a thousand years later, the King David wrote this psalm. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. So David is writing this, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, in Hebrew, the capital L-O-R-D refers to God's personal name, Yahweh. And then the capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is another name for God, Adonai. Now, this could refer both to God, but it, it could also refer to people who are distinguished. And yet, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. As David is writing this, he is the unmistakable ruler of Israel. Nobody was even contending at the time. And so who was David referring to when he refers to this Lord or Adonai? It must be somebody more distinguished than him. Well, we're told too that this figure, God says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. So this guy's a king. And uh, this imagery of making your enemies a footstool of your feet, this was something they used to do in ancient Near Eastern battle. Whenever the victor would meet those who were vanquished, the king who had been vanquished would lie prostrate, stomach on the ground, and the victorious king would put his foot 
right on top of the back of the person's neck to indicate that he had uh, vanquished his foe in front of all of their armies. And so this picture is what this Messiah figure, this anointed one, will do is that he will vanquish all of his enemies and will conquer them. Also, we're told that he will rule from Zion, which happens to be the same place later where, you know, Melchizedek came from, Jerusalem. Well, in verse 4, we're told the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Oh, the crucial linkage that we were looking for this entire time, right here. That you are going to be both a priest and a king. It's obvious from the context that this guy is going to be a king. And so God gave a pattern in the Old Testament first through Genesis 14 and then elaborated on it in Psalm 110, showing that there would be this figure who would arise, this chosen one who would be both a king and a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And note that it's forever. Remember how I mentioned that this guy Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy to speak of? And how the author of Hebrews inferred that that meant that he had an eternal priesthood? Well, it becomes incredibly clear right here in Psalm 110 that he will serve as a high priest forever, interceding on our behalf before God. Okay, some implications. I think the first and most obvious is that God gives us something amazing to confirm that he actually speaks through the Bible. You know, you might be here tonight as a skeptic of the Bible. You might be looking at numerous religious texts, and that might fill you with confusion. How do I know that the Bible actually comes from God? There's so many other competing claims out there from these other ancient religious texts. And yet God anticipated our skepticism. He knew that we would have questions. And so what he's done is throughout the Old Testament, he's peppered it with Old Testament prophecy in order to pre-authenticate the coming of His Son, Jesus. The Bible declares that God took on human form in the man, Jesus Christ, and that He came in His sole mission the first time to come and die for us so that we can have a relationship with Him, but that there is a time coming where He's going to establish His kingdom forever as the King. In the meantime, though, He intercedes for us daily as our high priest. And so, God gives us this incredible picture of what Jesus would do. And He authenticated it in advance. Now, it's interesting. When you look at Genesis 14, it's, you know, when you look at all the different facts about Melchizedek's life, it's just sort of a collection of sort of random facts about this guy. They seem sort of unrelated and incomprehensible. And yet, when you start to view it, though, through the lens of of Psalm 110, you get clarity. You know, think about this sculpture. Okay, you look at it, and it's just, it looks like a pile of random 
pieces of junk. But when you start to look at it from a certain angle, you gain clarity about the image that it produces. And in the same way, when you look at Genesis 14 through the lens of Psalm 110, you get this incredible picture of how God in history knew that you would have these skeptical thoughts in your head about whether the Bible actually speaks for God. And yet he's given us clarity about Jesus' mission to both be the king and also the high priest. Also, Jesus' priesthood effectively replaced the Levitical priesthood. You know, by implication, if Jesus serves as our great high priest in God's heavenly realm, in the heavenly tabernacle, so to speak, then this earthly priesthood has been done away with. Actually, the author of Hebrews makes this very clear in Hebrews 7.11. He says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, of it the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come, uh, one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? Yeah, why would God predict that there would be this priest-king who would emerge in the order of Melchizedek if the Mosaic law provided the solution? To human sin. Now, I think this is important because this also indicates that we are no longer required to turn to an earthly or human priest. You know, there are some denominations that argue that we still need to turn to an intermediary, a priest. That we can't just go to God on our own even though we have a relationship with God through Christ. And yet, you know, we would point to passages like 1 Peter 2, verse 5, which indicate that all of us, all believers, represent God's royal priesthood because we're believers in Christ. And yet they would also argue, though, that when you look at the Old Testament, for example, in Exodus 19, verse 6, God says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and yet God still reserved the tribe of Levi, as his uh, priesthood through whom he would work in the tabernacle. And so they argue, well, you know, the elders or leaders of the church should then serve as sort of the priesthood or intermediaries. Remember, you know, I grew up in a Catholic home, and um, I remember when I, uh, the church nominated me to become an elder, my dad called me to uh, congratulate me. He said, you know, I just want to tell you I'm really proud of you and it's awesome that you're now an elder. I was like, thanks, Dad. That's really cool. I said, you know, Dad, from now on, I want you to refer to me as Father. (laughs) He wasn't too happy about that. Um, But anyway, I think the point is that when you look at other New Testament passages, it clearly states that we're no longer to turn to a human intermediary since Jesus essentially nullified the Old Testament priesthood, we can enter boldly into God's presence knowing that we have one mediator, that is Jesus Christ. We're told in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there's one God 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And so we can enter boldly into God's presence without shame, without guilt, knowing that Jesus intercedes for us as our great high priest. Also, we're no longer under the Old Testament law. Again, the author of Hebrews explains in verse 12 and 18 and 19, for when there's a change of the priesthood, there's also a change of the law. The former regulation is set aside because it's weak and useless, for the law never made anyone perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Some people are mistaken and believe that, you know, in the Old Testament times, you could work your way to God by performing all of these rituals. And yet, it's clear God never intended to give us the Old Testament law in order to earn or achieve a right standing before God. The Bible is explicitly clear. There is nothing that we can do to ever earn salvation. God simply gave us these Old Testament laws to point to Christ, as we saw with that sacrificial system, and also to teach us about God's moral character. And so this yoke of the law has been thrown off now that Jesus has superseded the uh, Levitical priesthood. And that's a relief because we don't have to relate to God based on the Old Testament law. We're now free to turn to Him through the Spirit. And finally, Jesus can rescue us. Again, Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save us completely, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. You know, if you're here tonight, and maybe you've been investigating Christianity for some time, you know, God has laid out these incredible prophecies in order to give you evidence for belief. He doesn't want you to just simply throw your brain out and become a Christian. You know, you can be a thinking, rational, smart person and still be a Christian. And that's the reason why we have things like this. But ultimately, God has provided this evidence for you so that you can actually start a relationship with Him. But that begins by turning to Him and receiving the forgiveness that comes through the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. And God doesn't make that hard for you to receive. All you need to do is turn to Him in faith and place your trust in Him. And God says that you can forge a relationship with Him that will never end. All right. Yeah, we're grateful, Lord, that you, um, you know, lay out predicted prophecy for us. Um, I remember just uh, going through a study where I was looking through the Old Testament uh, prophetic material and was just blown away by how you, uh, in so many places, were able to um, accurately predict the identity of Jesus and also uh, lay out very specific things about his career. And I remember that being a very faith-building exercise, Lord. And so uh, we thank you that you include that stuff in the Old Testament in order to pre-authenticate Jesus' coming. And I pray, Lord, for uh, any people here tonight who are just investigating, uh, that they would look into that, that they would uh, check out this predictive material and see for themselves whether or not it's actually you speaking through the Bible. 
And uh, we thank you for anybody who, um, you know, is uh, willing to take that challenge. And uh, we pray that they would eventually come to know you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.